optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. <laughs> That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to explore and deconstruct world-class performers, people who are the best at what they do, to tease out the belief systems, philosophies, habits, routines, etc. that you can use. This particular episode is different for a few reasons, and I'm very excited about it. Number one, we have our oldest guest to date, 83 years, which I want to do more of. I want to really chronicle and investigate some of these treasures that we have on this planet. And uh, so I may also be going after Don Wildman soon. If you don't know who that is, you will shortly. But this time around, we have someone I've wanted to interview for decades, literally. His name is Dr. Philip Zimbardo at Phil Zimbardo on Twitter. He is one of the most distinguished psychologists in the world and a professor emeritus at Stanford University. He is arguably best known for his 1971 Stanford prison experiment in which students were turned into mock prisoners and guards for a continuous 24-hour-a-day study. This particular experiment was planned for two weeks but terminated after just six days, and we will dig into why that was the case, and he gives a fantastic overview of this study. In this podcast, we also explore how we as humans can do less evil, how you can be a deviant for a day, and I highly, highly, highly encourage you all to try this, and it's detailed in the conversation, what mindful disobedience is, and much more. It was a real blast to finally get him on the phone after having read so much of his work. Apart from all of that, uh, Dr. Zimbardo has served as president of the American Psychological Association and designed and narrated the award-winning 26-part 
PBS series Discovering Psychology. He's published more than 50 books, what? Including Shyness, The Lucifer Effect, The Time Cure, The Time Paradox, and most recently, Man Interrupted. The Time Paradox is another one that I recommend to everyone. Uh, if you're a fan of the Tony Robbins Dickens Process Exercise, as outlined in Tools of Titans, you will love that book. Dr. Zimbardo currently lectures worldwide and is actively working to promote his nonprofit. And trust me, this guy at 83 is more active than almost every person I know. So you will, I believe you will hear phone calls going on in the background. He's traveling all over the world, so don't let it distract you. Anyway, back to his current passion and focus, the Heroic Imagination Project, heroicimagination.org. His current research looks at the psychology of heroism. The question he poses is, what pushes some people to become perpetrators of evil while others act heroically on behalf of those in need? And that is precisely among many, many other things, what we explore in this conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy a wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Philip Zimbardo. Dr. Zimbardo, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I have wanted to connect with you and speak with you, and I don't say this to many people, for many, many decades. Uh, In fact, I was a at least for a period of time, a psychology major, technically in neuroscience at Princeton, and was actually a subject in some of the experiments of Danny Kahneman's. And oh, I, really? I, I was indeed. I, I tapped a space bar for, <laughs> for a very long time in a very dark room. And boring, boring. <laughs> it was very boring, but hopefully contributed to, to greater scientific progress in some fashion. I thought I thought we could start with people who are not uh, familiar with your work. Uh, when people think of Dr. Philip Zimbardo, what do they tend to associate you most with in the world of psychology or science? Well, my legacy, for better or for worse, is ye old Stanford Prison Experiment, um, which I did back in 1971. I was recently in Budapest. And I'm driving in a taxi, and uh, the taxi driver says, you sound like an American. I said, yes. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a psychologist. He said, did you ever hear that study where they put uh, college students in a prison? (laughs) 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 And this is in in Budapest, Hungary. (laughs) So, yeah, so it's... it's it's uh, what I'm most well known for because it was, it 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 is it was and is the most dramatic study ever done in psychology. In part because it went twenty four seven. Most research is just one hour. Uh, typically, it fits into a student's uh, curriculum schedule, but this pro this research uh, went on day and night for a week and it was supposed to go for two weeks. Uh, and so what was special about it is you could actually then see in the videos we took the character transformation of hour by hour, day by day of good kids beginning to do really bad things. And these were the nine guards and nine prisoners to begin with? Yeah. So if you want me to give a, you want a thumbnail overview? Sure. Let's get a, for those people not familiar, I think it'd be a great place to start. Okay, so the year is 1971. Uh, it's the 70s. Uh, exciting things are happening uh, in psychology. Um, uh, a little bit earlier at Yale, um, Stanley Milgram, who was my high school classmate at James Monroe High School in the Bronx in uh, 1950, uh, he had done the classic research on blind obedience to authority, in which he got mostly men, ages 20 to 50, not college students, um, to play the role of a teacher who is going to help students improve their memory by punishing errors. And the way they would punish the error is by giving them escalating levels of electric shock to their fingers. And what happened is the confederate who was pretending to be the student of the teacher began after a while to yell and scream and say, I have a heart condition, I don't want to go on. And the question is, would anybody continue? The experimenter kept saying to the, to the real participant, you must go on, you have a contract, you must continue, teacher. And the amazing thing is, two of every three of these adults went all the way to 450 volts, 
which in, in a sense could have been lethal. Uh, I should back up and say, when Milgram asked 40 psychiatrists at Yale Medical School what percent of all Americans would go to the, to the bitter end, uh, their estimate was 1%, because to do so, you'd have to be a psychopath. <laughs> so they're only off by 74%. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, so the point is, it's two of every three. Uh, oh, I got and, it, two out of three. And, and, and so, but his research was part of the demonstration of the power of social situations over individual dispositions. And I followed up, and my, my team at Sanford, Craig Haney and Kurt Banks and David Jaffe and I followed up by saying, you know, uh, it's rare that somebody will tell you to do something horrible or dangerous. Typically you're playing a role and in the role and you're in a group and everybody is doing this. So we reconceptualize the setting as a prison in which because prisons are all about power uh, and guards have power and prisoners try to get some and guards try to limit the, their, their, um, their attempts at power. And so what we did is we put an ad in the Palo Alto newspaper, wanted college students for a study of prison life that could go up to two weeks. And uh, 75 uh, people answered the ad. We interviewed each of them, gave them a battery of personality tests. And we picked two dozen who were normal and healthy in every way uh, we, could, we could imagine. And then what happened was we randomly assigned half to be guards, half to be prisoners. And, and in that setting, they became prisoners or guards. Now, of course, we, we made it realistic. They had un different kind of uniforms. Prisoners had symbols of power, billy clubs, handcuffs, military-style uniforms. And the prisoners were in uniforms that simply had a number on it. We took away the name. They became, a num they became dehumanized. And the amazing thing was... In 36 hours, a, a normal, healthy college student, and these were not students from Stanford, they were from all over the United States who were in the Bay Area finishing up summer school. One of the prisoners, 8612, I still remember vividly, had an emotional breakdown, screaming, crying, out of control. And, and each day thereafter, another prisoner had a similar reaction. So we ended the study after five days because it was out of control. And we could not imagine that, that a social situation could have such a profound impact. But what happened was the guards really became creatively sadistic. There were three guards working eight-hour shifts, uh, on, and there were three shifts, and there were th nine prisoners at any one time, three in a cell. And then the remaining, there were backup guards and backup prisoners. And so the study ended on this very down note of um, – good kids doing really bad things to each other, creatively evil in the role of guard. And this this has some very wide-reaching implications, it, it would seem, and you've written extensively about this, uh, and it has relevance to many things that are happening in, in our modern day today, including uh, the, the Abu Ghraib prison scandal, I suppose you could call it. And it was blamed on rogue soldiers, but uh, you were one to point out that it was it was it was a bigger issue than that. It wasn't you, you couldn't necessarily isolate a few bad actors. Uh, it was more of a, a systemic issue. Yeah, you hit it right on the head is that for your listeners, we'll just go back in time. In two thousand and four, someone released uh, pictures of American prison guards in Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, humiliating, torturing, degrading, sexually abusing prisoners who they should have been protecting. So these were images that came from the cameras of the guards themselves. And it was a global disgrace to America at a time when the war in Iraq was, was still a big, a big uh, problem, big issue. And uh, and what happened was, again, obviously the military disowned it to say this, there were a few bad apples. And curiously, I was in Washington, D.C. when that broke. Uh, I had been the president of the American Psychological Association and was there on a, on a follow-up visit. And someone from National Public Radio had been my student at Stanford, where I taught for 50 years, called me and said, hey, hey, Dr. Z, those images that we just showed were the same as the images you showed us in class of the prison experiment. Wow. 
uh, uh, putting bags over a prisoner's head, stripping them naked, etc. And so would you like to come on to be interviewed? And I was, and I simply said, look, my hypothesis is that most American soldiers are good apples. And what we have to realize is someone put them in a bad barrel and we have to know who are the bad barrel makers because that's who should be on trial, uh, not, not, not the soldiers at the end of the line. And that became an interesting metaphor, bad apples. That's what's wrong with the individual versus bad uh, barrels, which is the situational analysis. And then, of course, the system is the bad barrel makers, the people who, who make those uh, situations and, and sustain them. And then I actually defended Chip Frederick, who is a staff sergeant who should have been in charge of the night shift, but he too got sucked into the frivolity. They was it was they simply say we're having fun and games, and they did not have any idea that the images that they took with their cameras uh, would be released to the world. And now a few, few follow up questions related to that, uh, and I, I suppose the big question in my mind is if if you are someone who views themselves as a good person or at worst a neutral person who doesn't want to do evil uh how do you avoid the circumstances or the slippery slope of evil are there are there things that you can keep in mind or reminders that you can set for yourself things you can avoid to help to mitigate that risk no that's a great great way to frame it is that evil is seductive um, in fact, Christians around the world say to their God, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Uh, and the point is evil comes in many sizes, many shapes. There is the evil of action, doing bad things, but there's also the evil of inaction, right. not, not doing the right thing when you could. So this, this is what comes up in the bystander effect, uh, made famous uh, I guess 60 years ago in New York City when a young woman was being uh, assaulted, Kitty Genovese, and screamed and screamed and people heard and no one came to her aid. So the bystander metaphor is that people around the world do not come to the aid of someone in an emergency who who needs their help. Um, and uh, and so, so this is this so these are. Uh, fundamental themes is that uh, it's so easy to cross the line. And in all the research done in psychology, the Milgram study, the Sanford Prison study, and many, many other uh, experiments, the curious thing is, even though the majority gives in, complies, conforms, there is always a minority, 10%, 20%, sometimes 30% who resist. And so we, I begin to study what is it about those people who resist the temptation, the power of the group, especially when everybody else in the group is doing it, say, come on, it's fun and games. And so I began to think of them uh, as everyday heroes. I wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect, and the subtitle is Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. And the book has 10 chapters on the prison study, two chapters on Abu Ghraib, and then a lot of chapters on evil around the world, Bosnia, um, uh, Rwanda, and then in the end, I'm, you know, I'm buried in evil. I mean, it took two years to write the book, and I'm swimming in, in, a, in a sea of evil. And it was so depressing every morning to sit at my desk <laughs> and say, oh, my God, which evil am I going to deal with today? So in Chapter 16, if anybody in the audience has not read the book, start with 16 and work backwards. So 16 is really celebrating the banality of heroism in the same way that Hannah Arendt uh, in the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, talked about uh, Eichmann uh, as illustrating the banality of evil. That is, here's a monster who orchestrated the deaths of millions of Jews who looks like your Uncle Charlie, you know, who acts like, well, an intelligent Uncle Charlie because he, he was, he was a, you know, a very formal, intelligent guy. Uh, but I'm, And so I use that metaphor to say, you know, when we think about heroes, we really, you know, think about classical heroes. We think about Agamemnon and Achilles. We think about modern heroes like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. But th those people are lifelong heroes. What we should really be thinking is about ordinary people like any of us, ordinary people who 
and sometimes do extraordinary deeds of goodness, of kindness, of compassion. And we should think of them as heroes in training. That is, each day doing daily deeds of goodness and kindness that are not heroic in and of themselves, but they're really on a path toward heroism. And we, what we think is those people, when a big opportunity arises, when there is an earthquake, when there is a terrorist attack, they will be the ones more likely uh, to take a pro- wise and effective action. And, and I embodied all of that in a new program I started in San Francisco back in 2008 called the Heroic Imagination Project, or HIP. And the idea is heroism really starts in the mind. You have to think of yourself as, I could be a hero, rather than heroism is something uh, that's a job of other people or is the job of, of comic book characters. And I'd, I'd love to dig into a few of the things that you just discussed. So the first, sure. the, fir- the first is... And uh, I, I love the the latter portion of talking about the the everyday hero and these components, in part because I believe very much that if we're if we're looking for I would say patterns of behavior, I tend to agree with uh, one of my favorite quotes, which is Archilochus, who is a Greek poet, and it is, "We do not rise to the level of our expectations; we fall to the level of our training." So, if you're focusing on these daily behaviors on a micro level then the the hope is that on a macro level like you said when there's an earthquake and a disaster response or something like that if you need to triage you'll be the one to take that step forward i've looked at for instance the lucifer effect and uh, some of the writing around it and i found seven social processes that grease the slippery slope of evil right and and i'd love to just read these off and then ask a follow-up question so the first is mindlessly taking the first small step the second dehumanization of others. Third, de-individuation of self, in other words, anonymity. Then diffusion of personal responsibility, blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms, and then last, which, which you mentioned, the kind of error of the evil of omission and not commission, that is passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. Is it possible to become more heroic by doing the very opposite. So in other words, making these imperatives the opposite. Yeah. So so all of these, I I would embed in the broader context of the importance of situational sensitivity, situational awareness. So Milgram and I highlighted the power of social situations to dominate personality, but it doesn't mean it's, it's ubiquitous, but it doesn't mean it's inevitable. Step one is to realize your vulnerability, all of our vulnerability. Situational forces come in many different forms, many different shapes, but it's it's always to be mindful of what is happening around you. Because, and just to be aware that situational forces, the, uh, a group pressure, what other people are doing, how you're dressed, what the situation is, can influence your behavior. Uh, and so some of the things that, that you had just mentioned are really part of a greater sensitivity to things happening around you in the social situation rather than in the physical environment. And if we, if we want to go through one, one by one, I can just elaborate just a little bit on each. Absolutely. Yes, please. So number one was? Mindlessly taking the, the first small step. Yeah. So the conclusion from the Milgram experiment should be all evil begins with 15 volts. So in the Milgram study, the the participants had in front of them a big shock box that had 30 switches that began with 15 volts and increased by 15 volt increments, 15, 30, 45. And of course there was a label above the mild shock, strong, moderate shock, et cetera. But the key is, you know, imagine you're sitting in front of the shock box and you see at the end it says, Danger, high voltage, 350 volts, you know, uh, 75, 450. You have to say to yourself, you know, when I press this first button, what's going to keep me from continuing to press the next one and the next one and the next one? And, and then would I ever want to go to 40, 50 volts? So obviously I, I wouldn't. So, but the point is, once you press 15 volts, you are on that slippery slope of evil because it becomes easier and easier. 
and and when you press 15 volts, you know what? Nothing happens. The guy the guy doesn't even uh, notice it. But 15 volts then is really like the first time you cheat a little bit on a test in school. Uh, the first time somebody tells you a sexist or racist joke and you either smile or giggle or laugh a little bit right? rather than say, I think that's inappropriate. Um, you know, so, so again, it's, it's to be aware that even though there's nothing truly negative in that first 15 volts, it is literally on the path of what we consider a slippery slope of evil. It's going to get, it's going to be 35. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be 75. It's going to be a hundred. And then in two out of three cases, it gets to be 450 volts. Right. So being, being very aware of the seemingly harmless gateway drugs for sure down the slippery slope. Right. The number two is dehumanization of others. Yeah, the, the center of all prejudice, of all discrimination, is thinking about other people as less than human. So in our prison experiment, we took away uh, people's names, which is part of your humanity. We replaced them with numbers. They were, they were 8612, 416, 3609. And after a very short time, for example, when a, when a Catholic priest uh, who had been a prison uh, chaplain came to see the prisoners, at my request, he asked them, what's your name, son? Almost all of them gave their number. In a very short time, they had accepted our dehumanization and became that number. Now, uh, that dehumanization takes other forms. So by, by talking about uh, migrants, rather than people who are migrating out of danger, talking about in San Francisco, we have a big problem with the homeless. They're not homeless, they are people who do not have a home. So again, it's focusing on these are people in different circumstances of, of tragedy. Uh, but once you, once, you, once you apply a label, it, it's just like saying these are, you know, for Italians, WAPs were a dirty Jew or something of that kind. One, once you put a label on other people, you take away their humanity and then you you treat them as less than human. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, this is can proactively be done, of course, with those who orchestrate propaganda. It's, I mean, it's a, a meaning warfare, wartime propaganda. Whether it's a Goebbels, or if you look at some of the the collateral that was created during World War II in the Pacific theater. I mean, it's on both sides. It's the, the objective is to dehumanize so your soldiers are more effective in some cases. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sam Keen, who's, um, I guess I would call him a social philosopher, he lives nearby here in, in um, Marin. He has a wonderful book called Faces of the Enemy. And what he shows in, in, with graphic visuals um, that before any nation goes to war, they prepare their people to hate the other, the enemy, by having these visual um, depictions of them as less than human. Uh, and then in the end, it's mothers are willing to send their sons to war, to potentially die, to, to protect them from the, the in quote, the enemy. Um, yeah, so, so it's really a critical, a critical aspect. Now, uh, I'm jumping ahead. One of the ways that I work to prevent that is I am distressed, you know, especially now in San Francisco with we have cold and rain. You know, we have hundred, I don't know, seven thousand homeless people on the street. Many old ladies, sometimes families. So each day I decide: Am I going to give a fifty cents, a dollar? But I don't just give money to a homeless person. What I do is I try to humanize them. I will pick someone you know, on the street and then simply say. Hello, I'm Phil Zabardo. What's your name? And they're often surprised. I shake their hand. I give them a doll. I say, I, I, you know, I wish it could be more. I hope your luck uh, improves. And I take one minute to make, to, to convert that dehumanizing experience into a human one. And I, I had an occasion recently where a woman began to cry. I mean, because no one, no one had done that simple thing. Okay, number three. Deindividuation. Yeah, so I, I did early research when I was at New York University before I came to Stanford, simply putting people in masks, putting people in hoods, taking away their visual, their visual sense, putting them in the dark. It's, it's a Mardi Gras effect. 
we are able to show that when your identity is removed and you're in a situation that gives you permission to be harmful, aggressive, you will take it. So we did an experiment at New York University where we had college female, college psych one females, who half of them we put in hoods and we took away the name. They became one, two, three, four, and half of them we made feel special. And then they had the opportunity to give electric shock, they thought, to other women who were trying to, to remember material under stress. And what we found is college women gave twice as much electric shock to other women when they were de-individuated than when they were not. And so when you're anonymous, uh, it takes away, again, this links to another point, your sense of personal responsibility. No one knows and no one cares. Now, again, it goes both ways. In the Mardi Gras, if you're in a situation of fun and pleasure and enjoyment and lust, if you will, uh, people will go that direction. So it means that the de-individuation de takes away your central um, organizing principle of I am responsible for my actions. And essentially, you then go with the flow for better or for worse. Right. It removes the social inhibitions regardless of the the particular type or species of of impulse whether it's right. toward, towards lust or aggression or otherwise the next you you already alluded to in a sense is diffusion of personal responsibility yeah so this ties into the what we're talking about bystander effect is that ordinarily we each feel responsible for our actions we feel responsible for people around us certainly our friends and family, neighbors. And again, my hero project tries to extend that to say, you know, the world is my neighbors, the world is, it could be my friends. And all the research on diffusion responsibility simply says that when you see other people like you passing by someone in need, then they, they create a social norm of doing nothing when you know you should be doing something. And something sometimes is very, very simple. Uh, helping somebody up who's fallen down. And so it's something that we have to guard against is that not allowing the social norm of other people being uh, bad Samaritans to change uh, your your sense to be a good Samaritan. Now, one of the things, there's a fascinating study uh, that you probably know about. It was done by John Darley and his student, Daniel Batson, and it was at Princeton, Princeton Theological Seminary, where uh, what they did was they got a bunch of Princeton Theological students, kids who are going to become ministers. And they said, we're studying the power of sermons. And we'd like you to give the sermon on the Good Samaritan. Do you know that? Of course they know that. And we want you to go to, from the psych lab, go to the, the uh, recording studio, which is down, down this alleyway. Uh, and when you get there, they'll be waiting for you. And we just have to record your best sermon about the Good Samaritan. So here are good guys, Princeton Theological student, maybe good girls too, who thinking about being a, a Good Samaritan. And on the way, they encounter a woman in a, in a hallway, an alleyway, moaning, clearly in need. Now, do they help? It turns out they help if they are told, you know, uh, you have a, enough time. If they told you are late, please hurry, then 80% pass her by. <laughs> 80% of the people, Princeton Theological, on the way to give the Good Samaritan, turn out to be bad Samaritans if they're in a hurry. So for me, that's such an important message these days where everybody is in a hurry. We're all, we all feel time pressed. Even worse, we don't even notice somebody's um, uh, uh, moaning in a corner because we're looking at, our, we're walking, looking at our iPads our iPhones, our iPad, uh, and holding a Starbucks in the other hand. No, absolutely. And this has this has a bunch of different paths we could travel in this conversation. I do want to talk more about time a little bit later, but just to return to the diffusion of personal responsibility, this also has tremendous implications for, say, uh, and this relates to the bystander effect, but disaster response. And uh, uh, as one example, I did training here in Northern California for NERT, which I believe stands for Northern California Emergency Response Training or Team. And uh, the San Francisco lacks the right. 
municipal resources to respond to, say, a catastrophic, very high-level uh, earthquake, for instance. Right. They don't have the fire engines and um, medical resources to contend with a catastrophe of that scale. So they train volunteers, the fire department and a police department train volunteers to help in such a case. And one of the things that they teach is in a group emergency triage situation, if you're t- if you decide to take control of that situation and try to lead that you never that you always identify individuals in the group for sp- right. and assign them specific tasks you and you get their attention do this you do that because if it's a generic command to the group nothing's going to happen yeah i see it now for you, again for your list is if we turn it around if you are ever the victim if you are ever hurt and there are people around you the way you get help is you simply say you 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 point to someone you with, with the with the green dress you with the uh, the the uh, uh, brown uh, blazer, are you are you redhead. So you you single them out and you break down that that uh, anonymity of the group, and you're much more likely to get help. So what they're telling you know what they're telling you in terms of being an emergency responder. I'm saying if you are the victim, the same principle holds. Absolutely. The next is blind obedience to authority. Well, you see, again, we are all trained as children to obey our parents, our teachers, uh, our religious leaders, in some cases, our politicians. But nobody teaches us the distinction between authorities that deserve our respect and authorities that do not. Not all parents, not all ministers, we certainly know from the uh, um, horrific consequences of sexual abuse by thousands of Catholic priests over dozens of years that a lot of the, a lot of such people don't deserve a respect but nowhere do we get training in differentiating you know uh, appropriate from inappropriate authorities authorities that deserve respect versus authorities that deserve defiance and so so again I think in most societies we err the direction of well you know just obey authority and and the Milgram study shows how easy it is for that to get overextended, so the authority in the Milgram study was a guy in a white lab coat. He was actually a high school biology teacher. He, had, he, he knew nothing about psychology. He was just recruited by Milgram. And here he had uh, a Milgram, a Milgram study. They tested a thousand people. So here he had hundreds and hundreds of uh, adults in New Haven, Connecticut, blindly following his orders to shock more and more. And he was not an expert. He just had the trappings, the, the white lab coat of, of science. Uh, so, so again, it's, it's be wary of uh, authorities wearing false lab coats. Is there, is there any particular recommendation that you would have for someone who wants to train themselves to more consciously question or assess authority? Is there any type of mental practice that you have for yourself or question that you ask yourself on a regular basis to help with that. I think this is a very divisive problem that we have in the United States and certainly not limited to the United States right now in many respects. But if somebody wanted to train themselves to be better at avoiding blind obedience to authority, is there any any particular recommendation you would have? Yeah, but I think it's again questioning. I mean, uh, legitimately questioning to say, uh, uh, why should I do that? What are the positive consequences if I do it? What are the negative consequences if I don't? Rather than assuming if somebody says do that uh, because they're an authority, uh, that without de- directly questioning their their authority or power, I, I think you have to, they have to the burden has to be on them to be willing to explain to you why you should you should do what they say. And they have to give you a good enough reason. And it can't be because I said so. I mean, again, many parents say, you have to do it because I said so. Well, at some point you have to say, that's not a reason. You know, th- that's an opinion, that's an authority. Um, and, and, that, and then ultimately you have to be willing to challenge it. And when you challenge authority, there will, there could, will be some penalties, you know, 
if you're a kid, you get slapped in the face by, by your parents. You get, uh, but I still, you have to, I think you have to practice mindful disobedience. Mindful disobedience. I like that. The next is uncritical conformity to group norms. Yeah. You know, for, t- for, for all of us, as, especially as teenagers, when we're forming our identities, when nothing in the world is more important to be popular, to have kids like us, uh, that we are willing to become them, uh, that we dress like them, the music we like is their music, our hair, whether we have tattoos, whether we have piercings, you know, all depends on, you know, who our peer group, who our in-group is. And the problem is they begin to have enormous power over us. So if your peer group begins to smoke, then chances are you're going to be smoking. And if you start smoking, you're going to die young. If they are taking drugs, you not only take drugs, you take their kind of drug. Uh, if they are discriminating against, if it's guys discriminating against girls, uh, you do the same. If they're discriminating against, you know, uh, outsiders, um, people different than you. So groups have enormous power to shape our, our behavior, our way of thinking, our attitudes. As an individual, you have to separate out what parts of that group Am I willing to go along with? Because I want to be accepted. I don't want to be rejected. And what parts are unacceptable? That is, I should be willing to be rejected rather than to um, uh, to do some of the things that they would like me to do. One way to be aware of the influence people have on you is to be a, a deviant for a day. And the simplest thing to do is you put um, with a magic marker that is erasable, a square on your forehead. Okay. And, and that once you put it on, you know, you look in the mirror, you see where it is, and then you don't see it anymore. And people are going to say, what is that? It's a square. It's nothing. It's a square. I'm just trying something out. You begin to see very quickly how people put pressure on you to take it off. You're not different. You're not different in any way. There's a little mark on your forehead. And so what we find is very difficult to resist the temptation to just wipe it off because then you're doing what they want you to do. And the idea is if you can resist one day, eight hours, then suddenly you realize you have this inner power to be your own person. And, and especially with parents, I mean, mothers get crazed. You know, your, your best friend even said, come on, take it off. You know, it's, you're embarrassing them but, you know, by extension. So I invite your listeners to try the game of being a deviant for a day simply put a square uh, with a magic, a racial magic mark on your forehead, a small square, uh, and keep it on for a day. And just notice first the pressure people put on you to be what they want you to be, take it off. And you'll feel the temptation to do what they want you to do. But the learning message is that be sensitive to the pressure people put on you to be what they want you to be in other ways to like their kind of music, to dress the way they do, to um, share in their political views, et cetera. I used to have my students at Stanford do some things like that, but also dress dress up if you usually dress down, dress down if you usually dress up, or do just do some, some weird stuff and watch how people get really upset at you for very small deviations from what they think is ordinary and normal. So I love, I love this type of exercise and I, I want to double down and <laughs> encourage just like you did listeners to try this deviant for a day with this with the square and the erasable is important folks don't do this with a sharpie on your forehead uh and take a photo put it on social tell us what happened because oh, i appreciate that yeah absolutely sure. because these these types of um i've called them comfort challenges in the past i, I think you're so yeah. so critical i've had for instance some of my readers before go to a starbucks and just lay down on the floor for five seconds and then get back up and it, people behave doing something like that helps you to inoculate yourself against harmful conformity and yeah. Yeah. it also makes me think a lot of uh cato for instance considered the best or the the perfect stoic by Seneca and others yeah. who would deliberately wear say tunics of 
unfashionable colors to subject himself to ridicule so that he would learn to be ashamed of only those things worth being ashamed of. So yeah, I exactly. love this idea. I love, I absolutely love it. The, the last one is passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. Yeah. So that ties into the diffusion responsibility. Again, there's evil of action, doing bad things, uh, bullying, uh, sharing uh, prejudiced points of view. Uh, but there's also um, uh, not doing it yourself, but accepting it by others. I always think of the case of my uncle Charlie, who at family gatherings would tell the same jokes. Uh, it was either sexist jokes or racist jokes. And after a while, people would be uh, horrified. But no one would say to Uncle Charlie, I wish you wouldn't do it. And so one of the issues is how do you have courageous conversations with people like Uncle Charlie, who may, is probably unaware of the negative impact he's having? Uh, partly he's been telling this, these jokes for years and years when it was more socially acceptable. And how do you have a courageous conversation, for example, to say, gee, Uncle Charlie, I love the way you got I love the way you try to uh, make us all feel happy and relax and tell jokes. But m maybe you should tell a different kind of joke because some people, you know, wouldn't understand what you mean about black people or, or women uh, with b whether or not they have big breasts. You know, uh, and, and I think we're going to like it even more. So, so the key is you want to change behavior and the, uh, without the person becoming defensive and really saying, you know, yeah, eh, screw you. I do whatever I want. No, it's um, it reminds me of a a few things. Of there's a quote that I really like from Ayan Hirsi Ali. She's a quote which is uh, tolerance of intolerance is cowardice, and I think that right. yeah. uh, that is that's a good one. Certainly, one way to look at it. And there's a there's a book that is very helpful, and it's it's it might seem to be not directly related, but it does tie in nicely. There's a book called Lying by, it's a very short book by Sam Harris, who's a neuroscience oh, yeah. PhD. Yeah, I know him, yes. And it's, 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 a, it's a fantastically powerful and concise book about the damage done by white lies or not speaking truth. Right. And it is, uh, it is, it is a, a really powerful, uh, dense tome in, in the best possible way. I'd love to, if if, uh, if we have some time to explore it, I'd love to talk about the time paradox. Oh, sure. Time came up uh, in, in, a, in a few cases earlier and the importance and impact of perception of time in the case of the, 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 the would-be Good Samaritans who, when rushed, 80% right. right. running by the person in need. And uh, I think you've written this, that every significant choice, every important decision we make is determined by our perception of time. This is something I'd like to explore. Could you please describe for people the, uh, the time paradox and, 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 and uh, perhaps just give them an overview of, of why you wrote that book? Happy to do it. The reason I called my book The Time Paradox, which I wrote with John Boyd, who now was a Stanford graduate student, now works for Facebook, uh, is it's a paradox because we're arguing that the most important influence on all your decisions, whether big ones or small ones, and decisions that leads with leads you to your actions, is something inside of you that you're unaware of. And what it is, it's your sense of time perspective. And time perspective is the way you categorize and partition your sense of time into categories of the big ones of past, present, and future. And what, what we've discovered is it's much more complex and subtle so that all of us live in multiple time zones. So for some of us, if I ask you, tell me about your past. Uh, tell me your recollections of your childhood. Tell me your recollections of what happened last year. For some people, their answers are always focused around all the good things good times, good awards, successes, birthday parties. For others, it's all the negatives, failures, regrets, things you could have done or should have done, abuse of various ways. And we now can categorize those as people who live in the past positive or past negative. And then when I ask you about your present, 
for some people, people we call present hedonists uh, will outline all the fun things they do, all the pleasures they get out of life, uh, seeking knowledge, seeking sensation, seeking novelty. Uh, other people are present fatalists. They say it doesn't pay to plan for the future. I don't control anything. My life is controlled by fate. And this is true if you're Muslim, Allah uh, controls your future. Now, there are two ways to be future. So one future orientation is probably most of your listeners uh, focus on what do I have to do now to achieve objectives and goals that will take place in the future? So for, these are positive future, future of hope, future of possibilities. Um, there's another, two other ways to be future-oriented. One is future negative, that you're anxious. Will I be able to succeed? Will I be able to achieve? Uh, and so the future, instead of being filled with hope, is filled with uh, anxiety. A third way to be future-oriented is we call transcendental future, that I live my life so that when I die, I will go to heaven rather than hell. Uh, and so um, it's a different kind of system. I'm not seeking success. I'm seeking behaving in a way to be seen as a good person on, on Judgment Day. And I've developed a scale, the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory, ZTPI, which, which when you take it, it gives you scores on each of these dimensions. And if you go to my website, it's thetimeparadox.com. You can take the scale and you get, you get immediate feedback on your scores. Now, what's critical is we've discovered with lots and lots of research is that the most important thing in life is to have what we call a balanced time perspective, BTP, which means being high on past positive, being moderately high on future so that you're not a workaholic, uh, a positive future, and being moderate on present hedonism, which is selected when you do as a reward for doing um, achieving uh, good deeds with your future orientation. So there's lots of research that show people have high a balanced time perspective, are physically healthier, psychologically healthier, achieve more, um, that always, and this is research from around the world, uh, are, these are much, these are the most successful people psychologically and, and, and uh, with, even within the business world. So this research that I started back in 19, I, I guess about 2000, um, we now have an international time perspective group hundreds and hundreds of young uh, researchers and in many countries around the world. We meet biannually in Portugal, in Warsaw, in uh, Copenhagen. Next, next year we'll meet in Marseille, meet and talk about research we're doing. And it's not just research, it's application. So these ideas are in psychotherapy and family therapy uh, and, and clearly in business. Uh, so, I'm, so it's something I'm really proud of that it just a little research idea, and as I said, partly came out of the Sanford Prison Experiment, where everybody's sense of time was distorted uh, because because the evil of the guards made made every hour feel feel like you know uh, many 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 uh, more hours. What are some of the changes that readers of the Time Paradox have made? in their own lives or that attendees, for instance, uh, at the Time Perspective Conference have made in their own lives as, as a result of this work. Does anything come to mind? Oh, for sure. I mean, when, you know, for the people who live in the past negative, in the extreme, this is post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, one third of all American vets coming back from uh, Iraq, from uh, Afghanistan, are suffering with PTSD. Which is which in traditional treatment is incurable. We drug them to keep it from getting worse. We've developed a time perspective therapy, and with my colleagues in uh, Maui, uh, Rick and Rosemary Sword, in which we are able in eight sessions to quote cure. In uh, uh, our sample was like thirty-two vets with extreme case of PTSD. And part of it is teaching them about the psychology of time perspective and converting each of those negatives into a positive. Yes, of course, you know, it's not, it's not 
it's not undermining the negative yes your best buddy died in your arms yes you saw children being uh, sexually abused but now what we're going to do is we're going to put in positive slides in your slide tray um, using an old metaphor Uh, uh, you know did your did your family uh, write to you while you're there? Did you make any friends? Uh, uh, did you do did you do any good deeds? So now, clearly, what's happened? People have this negative time perspective. They have just loaded up. They have just exaggerated, misfocused on a few negatives, as if that's all, all there was. Even people have had abuse and life of that had that literally had some real abuse. You say, you know. We want you, we are to help you elaborate on all the good things in your life. Uh, yes, so one teacher embarrassed you. Tell us about all the teachers who praised you. Tell us about all the teachers who made you feel special. So, so again, it's po- literally possible, uh, if you understand the psychology of time perspectives, change your own time perspective, your time perspective of others. So again, in the, in the time paradox, and our other book is called The Time Cure, we give very specific suggestions. If you want to be more future-oriented, here's what you can do. If you want to be, uh, again, the problem with being too future-oriented is you become a workaholic. So how do you put some present hedonism joy into your life? Uh, and uh, so again, I try, I try to go from being a general researcher trying to discover how uh, the mind and and behavior work to always saying, how can we use these ideas to make our life better, richer, more productive, uh, and and uh, s- simply to take joy in being a human being. I mentioned before we started recording, but the, the fact that I received a, an early galley copy of The Time Paradox, it must have been in it must have been a child, right? <laughs> <laughs> it must have been no, birthday. no. It must have been <laughs> 2008 or or very late yeah. 2007. I think 2008, and uh, I I found it very impactful and underlined a lot in that book. And I ended up, among other things, in the each each morning. And and this is a recent implementation, but I have a a five minute journal routine where I try to present state ground myself with a few things like uh, gratitude bullets and so on before going on to the goal setting so that I'm not anxious and constantly future focused. But one of the affirmations, so to speak, that I found most helpful is I am unrushed. And this 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 comes back directly to the story about the, the Good Samaritans right. from the Theological yeah. Seminary. And uh, it, it's proven to be incredibly therapeutic for me. Uh, I would encourage people to check out The Time Paradox. I, fa- I found it to be a, a brilliant exploration. And it also, a lot of what you've written about corresponds to one of the most powerful exercises that I've experienced and studied of Tony Robbins. He has a process that yes. he calls the Dickens process. And the Dickens oh. process refers to the ghosts of of Christmas past, present, and future, right. and and taking people through these different tenses uh, in, in a number of respects to, like you said, uh, replace or at least augment some of the slides in their current slideshow. Yeah, but that's a great, I mean, again, we, we all uh, tell the story of, you know, Dickens and Scrooge and living in the past, present, and future. The point is, we have to we have to combine those. That ha, how do we when we think about the past? How do we embellish it, enrich it? When we but we want to enjoy. We want to live in the moment. We want to enjoy the present of family, friends, fun. In the we now know the importance of uh, uh, spending time outside in the natural environment, not living at our desks, you know, uh, um, or or in our cell cell phone environment. Uh, and again, we want to have hope, possibility is in the future. How do we shape our past and present to make us ready to enjoy the best in the future? And also to think the future is always shapeable, modifiable by our actions. Now, the other thing I should add here is that one of the ideas we I promote in the uh, Heroic Imagination Project is we are most effective in, in teams, in small groups. I call them hero squads. So when you want to challenge authority, when you do it alone, 
the authority dismisses you as a fanatic. When you have three or more people who agree with you and you confront authority, then it is a point of view. When you say, we believe, sir, that what you're doing is not appropriate, is not in our best interest, they can't dismiss you individually. So again, when, uh, when you're challenging unjust authority in the classroom, uh, in, in an organization, in a church, whatever it is, it is always better to do it as part of a small uh, operating uh, team. Is the defining difference between heroism and altruism the resistance of some type of authority figure or authority? Is, it, is that one of the differentiators? No, no, no. The key, the key between altruism is doing social good, heroism is doing a civic virtue. The difference is altruism is heroism light. Uh, the, the, the key, the key is uh, to be a hero. It's to take action on behalf of others in need or defending a moral cause. And the key now is aware of potential risks and costs to you. So I give, I give blood to blood bank. I give money to homeless pe- uh, people who are homeless. Uh, I do, I work in a soup kitchen. It doesn't cost me anything except you know, a little bit of time. So in the extreme of heroism, you die, okay? Uh, you lose, your, you, you risk your life, you ri- life and limb. Uh, uh, whistleblowers often lose their job and don't get promoted. But the key is just a perception, I'm doing this despite the fact that there could be a cost, that there's some potential risk to me. And even though I'm aware of that, nevertheless, I continue to do it. If you have five more minutes. Oh, I have all the time in the world. <laughs> I just want to be respectful of your time. I, I definitely have time. <laughs> no, so so I, I will tie in this last thing with the prison experiment. And the reason why I ended the study, and it also ties to heroism. Um, so the Stanford prison study, um, it was scheduled to go for two weeks. I, I doubt if I could have really gone more than a week. I probably would have gone. It started on Sunday. I probably would have gone to the following Sunday to make it you know, a full week, partly because it was overwhelmingly stressful. Um, it wasn't clear to me what it meant to have an experiment that runs night and day continuously. Uh, it was me, two graduate students, and one undergraduate, and then one graduate student had to leave in the middle of the study, had a family emergency. So we have me and two students working 24-7. Prisons are having a breakdown every single day. Uh, parents are coming for visiting day. Uh, there's parole board hearings for prisoners who, who want to who leave. Uh, there's visiting uh, prison chaplains. There's rumor of escape plan. There's all these things happening. And of course, I'm in charge. And I'm sleeping on a couch in my office on the second floor the psychology department, Jordan Hall. Um, and so I'm overwhelmed with stress, but I'm, I'm going to keep it, probably keep it going till, till the weekend. And then on Thursday night, my girlfriend, Christina Maslach, uh, who had been a graduate student at Stanford, who just got a job at Berkeley um, to start in September, uh, said she was working at the Stanford library. Uh, and, you know, could we have dinner uh, uh, in the evening? So I had to come down on Thursday night. So the study started August 14th, 1971. So this is like five days in. Uh, and I said, you know, come down and then we'll go out to dinner. And what she sees is uh, what is listed on my schedule as the 10 o'clock toilet run. At 10 o'clock was the last time prisoners could go to a real toilet. After that, they had to urinate and defecate in a bucket in their cell, which they hated to do because it smelled terrible. So the guards used the guards on the night shift, and the night shift was was the worst one, just as in Abu Ghraib. The night shift was was where all the disaster took place, partly because they thought nobody was looking. Um, that the guards lined the prisoners up, put bags, paper bags over their head, chained their legs together, started yelling and cursing and uh, you know abusing them in every way. This is at Stanford. And at San- this is in the Stanford prison experiment. Right. Uh, and the same thing in Abu Ghraib, but in the same prison. So I look up, I'm looking through one, you know, a one-way screen. And for me, it's a check mark on my daily schedule. You know, eight o'clock breakfast, uh, 10 o'clock visiting day, 12 o'clock lunch, two o'clock parole board hearing. It's a 10 o'clock toilet run. And I, I look at my Christina, I say, hey, look at that. Isn't it interesting? She begins to tear up and runs out. 
runs out uh, to the uh, quad in front of um, uh, Jordan Hall's stand. And I run out, we have this big argument, and I'm saying, you don't understand the dynamics of human nature. Nobody's seen, seen this before in action, et cetera. And she says, stop. These are not prisoners. These are not guards. They're boys, and they are suffering, and you are responsible. And then she says, you have been changed by the power of the situation more than anyone. Yeah. And how could you not see the suffering that is obvious? And I'm still arguing. And then she says, stop. Uh, if this is the real you, I don't think I want to continue my romantic relationship with you. We had just moved in together. We were thinking of, you know, living together and getting married. And so, so to tie back to the point I made, so this is heroism in action. She's saying, I'm willing to pay the cost of giving up a lifetime with you. Uh, and, you know, we were, we were very much in love. Uh, uh, if you don't come to your senses. Now, she never said you have to end the study. She just said, you know, uh, you know, you have to realize, you know, uh, that that your perception is being distorted by the role you're playing as prison superintendent. And at that moment, I said, oh, my God, you're right. Uh, we had dinner at like midnight and then I ended the study the next day. So so this is a, a, the best example I know of heroism in action. An ordinary person, uh, you know, a former student confronting authority and just making it clear that, you know, that she is willing to pay this price, you know, in order to challenge this uh, uh, moral injustice that that was that was happening. That is a great story. And I think it's I think it's a great place to wrap up for for today. This installment we're practically neighbors, so it'd be lovely to to meet okay, in person at some it. point. <laughs> but I I really appreciate you taking the time, Doctor Zimbardo. This has been uh, a a dream conversation of mine for a very long time. So I, I really appreciate you carving out the time in your schedule. You seem to be as 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 occupied and engaged as ever with the world. <laughs> I'm more so. Yeah. So, so I, I should mention that that I no longer te I teach at Stanford maybe once a year. I give a model lecture to introductory psych. Uh, I, I taught more students in more different courses than any professor in Stanford history. I had classes of over a thousand students in in introductory psych. But now I go around the world and I do I do training in our heroic imagination project in Hungary and Poland and Sicily, soon in Czech Republic, in Bali and uh, Australia. Um, so, so I keep busy. You, you certainly do. And you, you taught, well, you taught for, I guess, uh, 57 years. Is that right? Retired after officially retired after teaching for certainly 50 plus years, but you're still teaching. That's the beauty of it. You've, yeah. you've just chosen a different, a different, yeah. uh, vehicle through which to teach. And, uh, First and foremost, thank you for okay. for jumping on the phone. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, you can find the show notes, links to all of these books, articles, studies, and so on, as usual, in the show notes, where you can find links to every other episode as well at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, all spelled out. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to 4hourworkweek.com. That's 4hourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.